Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today is going to be Guy Talk to get things started, which I'm very excited about. I always enjoy the guys who uh, participate, guys who talk. I've got Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastor Tom Parrish, and Pastor Tom Brock, who is calling in all the way from Italy. I think that's true. Tom, are you in Italy? I'm in Italy. I just had some pasta. Where, where in Italy are you? Where, where in Italy are you? Do you I'm have in, any idea? I'm in. Yeah, I'm in Ravenna, Italy which is, I think, one of the best tourist sites on the planet. About five churches totally intact from 500 A.D., which is very unusual. Wow. Big mosaics on the ceilings. I mean, th- this is where the Roman Empire moved after it fell. They, it moved up to Ravenna. So there's just, I mean, if you like really old buildings and Christian churches, this is the place to go. Well, we'll ask you more questions in a minute, but I want to start with uh, reading from Psalm 63, verse 1, and our special guest Jim's going to read it. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Oh, that's good. Love Psalm that. 63, 1. Thank you very much for that. All right, let me know what your questions are. Power panel's ready to take them. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Okay, uh, gentlemen, what is up with uh, John chapter 8? That doesn't start until verse 12. Are you talking about the the woman caught in adultery? That's what I was thinking, Yes, yes. And the, the problem with that is, uh, that the earliest versions don't have it, or they have it, but in a different area. Okay. Some of them, I think, have it. And so, and but people think it probably is a real story from the life of Christ. But it's just got a strange history when it comes to when you look at the very oldest uh, manuscripts. Uh, it's just kind of got a varied history, so it's kind of questionable what's going on. <laughs> Yeah, it's the same thing that's going on in the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark, too, is the earliest manuscripts, right, don't have those later parts of the story. And it doesn't necessarily make them less inspired because the canon of Scripture wasn't fully implemented until about 363 A.D. with Athanasius and the list of the books. So all of these what are called glosses or later editions of the text were seen as inspired and needed to be part of the text. I think there's a gloss in... First John as well, just in a, in a verse about the Spirit and water, something related to baptism. So there are these little, what are called additions to the text post the initial writing of it, but were approved by the church at that time. And I think it's because in the early church, especially, so much was word of mouth, mm-hmm. and they knew people. And so they knew this was an apostle Peter's or a, a follower of Peter's or whatever. And I'm sure these stories, like the woman caught in adultery, Went on for generations, and then somebody said, you know, that really ought to be in there. It's part of what really happened with Jesus, and it's a great story. It, an incredibly important story, right? I mean, it, it really lays out in stark detail the difference between the law and the grace that Jesus was offering. And, and 
whereas the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were leading with the law with no sense of grace and thus wanting to condemn her through stoning. And, and to condemn someone meant that their future was now fixed. This is where they're headed. There was no hope for them. And uh, and Jesus says instead, to start out with, he, he clears the decks for her by leveling the playing field, by offering the grace towards her. But then he does something interesting, and I think this is what we miss a lot of times in our existing versions of faith, is after he clears the deck, gives her a hope and a future through grace, he does turn to her at the end of the story and say, now, in light of this grace, basically, go and sin no more. In light of being rescued by this grace, now leave this life, life of sin. And I think it's that combined message of grace and truth that John opens his gospel with, saying that we experienced him as filled with grace and truth, we see that on display in the story of the woman caught in adultery. What I like is you get the the totality of Jesus in this story. I think most people today would like to talk about, we're not going to condemn anybody. We're going to be like Jesus. We're not going to condemn you. Go and do what you want. But then Jesus says, neither I condemn you, but go and sin no more. So he took the sin seriously, which I think we're struggling with today in our culture. People don't take sin anymore as the detriment that it is. And yet Jesus gives us the full dimension, and that's the Jesus we want to follow. Yeah, I think what you just said, I think, is really important, Parrish, because I think there's this misnomer that unless you're, you, you come hard with the law and you come hard against sin, that you're not taking sin seriously. Jesus did that in certain circumstances, but that approach that he took was almost always only for the religious leaders of the day. Exactly. Otherwise, his le- Jesus took sin incredibly seriously. I mean, we're talking about God leaving heaven and becoming flesh and dwelling among us. I don't know how much more serious you can take sin. And yet his lead for people was grace. He came and said, there is space for you to come into the light with your sin so that I can help transform that sin. And I think there's a big lesson to be learned by that about how do we lead as we take sin seriously, we lead with grace, not to just let it slide by, but you, you come into the midst of it in that mood and, and in that mode, and then you can offer the truth of the kingdom as people are sort of broken by the fact that you didn't crush them with the law to begin with. And, you know, if, if I could just go back to why it's in some versions and not, I've been interacting a little bit with this woman who is telling me the King James Version is the only true Bible. Everything else is not the Bible. And it's stuff like this, that, like the the passage in 1 John uh, that you related to, Peter, about there are three in heaven, God, the Word, and Spirit, something like that. It's really not in the original manuscript. It's in the King James. But that text is not in an old manuscript anywhere, a real old manuscript, which means it was added. And so there's a whole science called textual criticism where we take the oldest, best manuscripts, compare them against each other, and we really have come up with a—I'm not saying anything's wrong with the King James Version, but some of the verses are not in the original text. And uh, now and then I, I, I bump into someone who's convinced that the only true Bible is the King James Version. It's such a strange teaching. And, I mean, my my thought back to this woman is, what, so there was no Bible before 1611? What do the people in Spain do who can't speak English? You know, it's just such a strange teaching. But, you know, I, I just look at the footnotes of your NASB or ESV or, or NIV and just see, and sometimes there is a problem, not with hardly any of the Bible, but now and then there is a textual problem that we just have to admit and do the best we can to figure out if it was in in the original writings. Brock, do you know the origin of this idea that the King James Version is the only inspired version? Because it literally just came up over lunch with some students today that they had run into that, and it's been a long time since I've heard that. But I've also had a student 
give me, I think it was about an 800-page book that was outlining <laughs> yeah. why the King, and then told me to read it, yes. and, and uh, why the King James Version was the only version, and even said, you shouldn't consult the Greek or the Hebrew any longer, because the King James Version has all of what you need related to that. And so I don't, right. do you know the origin of this? I, you know, I don't, but I do know that there's a woman who's done some videos that are on the internet that very thoroughly explaining how, you know, it's kind of like a conspiracy theory. We're out to get rid of the blood of Jesus. So if the King James uses the phrase blood of Jesus and another version doesn't because the original verse doesn't have it in there, see, they're trying to get rid of the blood of Jesus. I mean, it's, I don't know the origins. I don't know how it started, but it's just such a strange teaching. Well, you think about it. What's it called? The authorized King James Version. Right. And the authorization goes back to that time period in 1611 when it was came up and the king endorsed it and so it became the popular translation because it was really the first for the people the problem with it is uh it's just one of many translations that need to keep going back because english and other languages keep changing what most people don't realize is that the koine greek does not change it's now considered a dead language now it's not modern greek it's an ancient greek and it doesn't change at all which mm-hmm. is astounding the Lord would do that because he has fixed the truth there in the Greek and in the Hebrew. And now when we come over into English, we keep coming up with all these translations and there's nothing wrong with them. And I told you before, you know, when I first went to seminary, my wife bought me an eight translation New Testament. So I sat there and read all eight (laughs) translations on every text every time I looked at it. And it was the best thing I ever did. Hmm. Nice discussion, gentlemen. Yeah, so I'm going to take a break, and we'll come back. We, we are going to continue Guy Talk. Let me know what your questions are, 877-933-2484. One more time, 877-933-2484. The power panel today is Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Peter Kapsner. Be right back. you have on your mind today. We'll get your questions answered to the best of our panel's ability, which I must say is pretty impressive. I got to say, you guys are smart. We're, we're, we're I'm thankful. thank you. There's some awkward silence. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, we just don't usually hear such a, it was such a profound compliment. We didn't know, know what to do with I that. Yeah. Like, well, I was confused and disoriented. What road am I going down? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, I can't, that I can't take back. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. You remember the what would Jesus do bracelets? For sure. sure. So when you wear one of those, because uh, we go back to the woman caught in adultery, and Jesus says, you know, go and sin no more. Mm-hmm. Did you ever go, well, what would Jesus do? He'd tell someone to go and sin no more. He would. Would you ever say that to another person? Go and sin no more? I think it depends on the relationship. I think, okay. yeah, yeah I, I wouldn't. I, I don't know that I could uh, do a perfect stranger. It doesn't mean I shouldn't. I just, yeah. that uh, wouldn't be the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I could. Okay. I'm just curious. I would hope somebody would say it to me if I was in I some would. state of, yeah, <laughs> of that. I have no doubt, Bill. So. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. But, but Bill, you know what grace abuse says? What? Go and, go and sin some more. That, oh. That's the problem with with our churches. We're grace, grace, grace. You don't need to repent. It's go and sin some more. Mm. Mm. 
But when we, one of the things I always try to do with people, whether in counseling, preaching, or teaching, is I try to get them to be honest about their own life. I don't need to know everything that's going on in your life, but let's be real honest. Are the mistakes you made, are the shame and the guilt that you carry, which usually has an origin of sin, mm-hmm. without starting with sin, are they making your life better? Do you really feel like you're, you're lighthearted and happy and joyful in this life and that you have a purpose? And almost 90% of the people always say to me when they get honest, no, I've carried this burden all my life and I don't know what to do with it. Well, isn't that interesting? Because that's what Jesus calls sin. Yeah. And he's got a remedy. And so you help people start to step into that. Rarely do I start with the, the law and the big heavy step, boom. Sometimes, sometimes Tom I do, but I usually try to be careful with that because I don't really know the full extent of their issues. And uh, as I mentioned before, I had a woman come to me. She wanted to talk to me about her son, and then she came back two months later. It was her daughter that was the problem. Then she came back a month later. It was her husband. And I had just learned how to listen. I went through training on active listening. And so I'm trying to do that and apply the scriptures properly. And uh, two months later, she comes back. And she said, I'm not here about my son, my daughter, or my husband. You're the first person that's listened to me. And then she cried for 20 minutes. Mm. She cried for 20 minutes in my office. When she got done, she looked at me and she said, I'm going to tell you what happened to me when I was in junior high. My three next door neighbor boys raped me. Mm. And my parents were good friends with their family. And they thought I made up the story. And I've carried this burden. And this lady was in her 40s at that point. And that's when healing could substantially begin. Um, And I'm thankful. Because I had remedies right from the beginning. I was going to give her Dobson's book on how to raise girls or boys or whatever. That was not the issue. The issue was something much deeper in her. And rarely do we get to those places of people. Yeah, agreed. And, and I think, Brock, too, you bring up an important point that if we're just grace, 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 that to nuance that story of the woman caught in adultery, she was uh, in, in a place where she, it was very clear to her <clears throat> that she had made a tremendous and significant mistake. I mean, she was dragged into the middle of these men, and it says she was caught in the act. So she was probably in an incredibly vulnerable kind of position to begin with, and there was no doubt. she It was red-handed. And so this was not somebody that was not aware of their sin. And, and so grace becomes amazing when we become fully aware of our sin. That, that has to be yep. the lead part of this is that it, it, otherwise it's kind of sort of interesting grace. It's not amazing grace, how sweet the sound, right? Yeah. And, and so Matthew Amen. 5, when Jesus yep. says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's saying, blessed are those who know they don't have what it takes. It's, it's when you get to the end of your rope and the sin that you're in, and that's when grace then drives you to your knees and gratefulness. And, and you wake up like the woman who, who broke the alabaster jar on Jesus's feet, right? It says that she who has been forgiven little loves little, but he's been forgiven much loves much. And, and so that when you get the depth of the forgiveness, that's when you turn and begin to love in the kingdom in the way we're, we're invited to. I remember a grade school Sunday school teacher that made a very good point, and I don't know what she was going through, but she said, you won't understand the love and the grace of Jesus until you have sheer awe that he did this for you. Right. And that really made and all the know, difference. Yeah. I, I think of the woman at the well, and Jesus is talking at, with the woman at the well, and he brings up her sin. Boom. Yeah, you've got six husbands. I mean, right in his first conversation with this woman, he got to her sin and to the hard stuff. And I think sometimes that's okay to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I had a I don't know, 20 minute talk with this young realtor who I just bumped into and he's talking about his church and he's living with his girlfriend. And he's talking as if this is just fine. And so I said, yeah, well, you know, the Bible says, fornication is a sin and your soul is a danger. I tried to do it lovingly and humbly, but I'm never going to see him again. Saw him for 20 minutes, 
but I wanted him to know that something is rotten in Denmark here. And just to say, love, love, grace, grace, I believe First Corinthians 6, fornicators don't go to heaven. You need to repent and turn to Christ. And I tried to kind of get that to him. But um, sometimes it's okay to bring up people's sin. I think we have to be loving and humble about it. But Jesus just puts that in the face of this woman at the well. I thought he was in Italy. Yeah, we thought so too, Denmark. Yeah, no, he's <laughs> there's something wrong. We never really Denmark. know. Yeah. Oh, 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 I'm in Italy. Okay, yeah. good. good. <laughs> you, make a, you make a good point, Tom, and I, I agree with you. Here's the thought. Look at Jesus. Jesus did not use a formula with everybody. Mm-hmm. We like formulas, and so we think, i got to start with the sin. i got to start with the damnation. i got to start with you're going to hell. There are times I do that. It depends on the individual. But there are many other times I don't start there. I start somewhere else. And for me, what I try to do as best I can is be open to where the Spirit's leading because people have hidden things in their life. They want, Rarely do they give you the real issue up front. But when they do or you get down below that, then you discover some things that, and I've often said, as a pastor, there are things I've heard I wish I hadn't heard in the first place. Mm-hmm. All right, here's a question. Uh, I'm going to direct this towards the Toms. I am looking for a Lutheran church to join and was wondering what you and the guys thought on LCMC church and what their beliefs are. In your opinion, what Lutheran synod church do you recommend me looking into? I was baptized in the Wisconsin synod, but was a member at Missouri synod church in the past until politics took over the church. Go ahead, Tom. We know you're going to jump in and I'll be right behind you, buddy. Well, all right. Uh, Wisconsin Senate is extremely conservative. I mean, I'm very conservative, but Wisconsin is very, very picky. And for me, too uh, conservative. Uh, Missouri Senate is very biblical and conservative. Um, the What I love is the Association of Free Lutheran Congregations. They're very biblical, very evangelical uh, people. Um, the LCMC, Lutheran Churches in Missions for Christ, I think that's it, something like that. Um, they're good. They're much, they had the sense to leave the ELCA. <laughs> so most of the people in the LCMC are former ELCA people that couldn't take the liberalism and finally left. They, um, they ordain women, which I don't believe in. But other than that, uh, they're pretty good. I agree, Tom. I agree. And AFLC, Association of Free Lutheran Congregations, is pretty biblically balanced and pretty straightforward. Um, Not much different than uh, some of the more conservative ones. The problem is, and here's where the real problem comes in, each church you have to look at individually. Even if they're LCMC or Missouri Senate or whatever, you still have to look at the individual church and how the, the pastor and the leaders handle the Word of God. Yep, that's true. Peter, do you want to jump in on that? or you right, want no, I got nothing. Let that, <laughs> got nothing. You want Seems let like that they handled that just fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, what do you think is the biggest barrier to people being in awe of God? I've got words like stupidity, uh, <laughs> you know, blindness, yeah. uh, arrogance, um, a sense to try to manipulate the situation. Human nature is, in the end, we want to be God. Human nature is we want to have the final word in everything that goes on. To be in awe is when we finally realize we're not God. We can't come up with the right answers, and we fall at the feet of Jesus. And we declare, you are Lord and King. To me, that is where we need to get, and that's one of the hardest places for people to get until 
until they're very much broken in a bad situation. Yeah, I agree. I think... I'm I'm mindful of that passage in James that it says that if you're looking for wisdom, just go ahead and ask and God will give generously without fault, but don't be double-minded about it. And and I bring up that passage because to be double-minded means that you are using God among many possibilities for wisdom and life moving forward. And and I think we do diminish God as if God is similar to a, a, a trusted counselor or uh, maybe a blogger that we've read or something, some somebody that will just help our own sense of goodwill and peace. And we don't recognize that this is the creator of the universe that we're right. talking about. And so we kind of use God to fit our own means and our own ends. Even our prayer life so often are, I'm feeling existential angst about something. And so hopefully God can relieve that angst. And it's really a me-centered kind of situation that brings down, and it's not that God doesn't care about those things. God clearly does. But I, I don't. I think we just underestimate. <laughs> I, oh, yeah. I, I'm very mindful of the fact that God is inexhaustible. So if if that's true, and this has been a discipline I've entered into the last 18 months or so, that if God is actually inexhaustible, and we spend an infinite amount of time with God in heaven, and when C.S. Lewis starts talking about things like every day is better than the last when you get to the other side, so think about how majestic God must be in His inexhaustibility that you could spend eternity with Him, and every day would be better than the last. I, there is no relationship that I can think of where it's even close to that, where every day is better than the last on that kind of level. And so you're talking an infinite God creating an infinite ver- uh, universe for infinite fellowship with him where every day is better than the last. Now I get a little, just at least a little whisper of awe when I head to that same God in prayer. All right, Peter, a listener uh, would like you to repeat something you said, which almost never happens to me. <laughs> this, is, this, this, is, this is a big day. Whoa, this must really be good. That right. is a big day. But uh, could you have Peter say that again about grace becomes amazing? Could you say something? Yeah, to like the, I think grace becomes amazing to the extent that you are in full awareness of your sin. When, when you know what could and should be greeting you, when, when you are not yep. playing games, when you're not justifying, where you're not pretending, where, where you just let the fullness of your own depravity come to the surface, then in that moment you would expect, understandably so, to be greeted with the law, to be greeted with the hammer, to be greeted with condemnation. But when God extends the hand of grace and says, this is why I came. I came for this very reason. I want you actually still in fellowship with me. Now grace is amazing. It's not kind of sort of interesting. It's amazing grace. Yep. How sweet the sound. It saves a wretch like me. And you don't need to worry about that because in the Guy Talk daily devotional that we'll be putting out, it'll be written in there on your page. <laughs> <laughs> well, but uh, along the lines of what Peter just said, look what Paul the Apostle does yeah. in the first three chapters of Romans. Romans chapter 1 is very depressing where Paul condemns all the Gentiles. They went after idolatry instead of after the true God. Chapter 2 of Romans, very depressing. The Jews are all damned because they had the light of God, and they rejected it and broke his commandment. And so the first two chapters of Romans were the darkest, the most depressing part of the New Testament, I would say. And then the first half of chapter 3, Paul... uh, cherry picks Old Testament verses about the sinfulness of man, but then he brings Jesus in, in in Romans 3, and then the gospel shines brightly. It wouldn't shine as brightly had the gospel not been against such a black background. All right, we'll take a short break. When we come back, let me know what your questions are for Guy Talk 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. 
Welcome back to the afternoon show. Guy Talk is a happening right now. I love when Guy Talk assembles. The power panel is Dr. Peter Kapsner, Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and we're so glad that uh, they're here answering questions. 877-933-2484. Here's a really good question. Uh, talk about what it means to be made in the image of God and how that relates to the question in our culture, what does it mean to be human? Mm. That's too deep for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anybody else want well, to take a swing? Being created in the image of God is, is not... For a long time, people thought, okay, so we're saying that God has a head, two arms, hand. I mean, we think physical. Being created in the image of God is what got Adam and Eve in trouble. Free will. That ability to choose. And because we have the ability to choose... The animals don't have that ability. There's nothing else that we know of that has that ability. We do, and because we can do that, we can choose right or wrong. But we need the spiritual enlightenment that only comes from Jesus to do it consistently. You know, even bad people could do some good things once in a while. But we need that, and we that that image of God means that we're also highly creative. We're creative beings that can go out and do things and make changes. So I think it's important, and one of the biggest problems I had with confirmation students is getting the young kids to see that they are created in the image of God, that they are a special individual, and that uh, their identity will make all the difference in who they are and what they do in life. All right. You're just scrunching your face at me, Peter, so that means you got nothing. I thought that was an amazing answer. That <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Let's move on. All right, here's a... Uh... Interesting reaction with my soccer team last week. We are a Christian school that plays other Christian schools and homeschool groups each year in different sports. I'm a rookie soccer coach. So when we started each game with prayer, I invited the other coach to gather his team to pray with us, assuming it would, uh, wouldn't be an issue since they are also a Christian church school. I was surprised to say they couldn't pray with us. I said, but we're all Christians, right? To which he replied, you aren't of our fellowship. So I went home and yeah. looked up the CLC and was in for a surprise at the really conservative interpretations on their beliefs. Aren't we yeah. all going to be in heaven together? How awkward is that going to be someday? Yeah, and when I earlier said that even though I'm very conservative, the Wisconsin Synod is too conservative for me, if you're a Wisconsin Synod Lutheran, you're not supposed to pray with non Wisconsin Synod Lutheran Christians. You know, they don't doubt that Baptists are maybe saved, but you don't pray with them. I'm thinking, where is anything like that in the New Testament? Mm -hmm. To me, that is so overboard. My youngest son is married to the daughter of a Wells official, and uh, we have some interesting get-togethers. And my other son is married to uh, a pastor who is a very liberal ELCA. You should come to our house for Thanksgiving. (laughs) (laughs) I can throw out a question, and a real fight can get going. The, the problem is, we. what is strange to me, whether it's Wells, whether it's any of these, whether, you know, whatever, is that where we divide are on things that aren't the central issue. The central issue is, who is this Jesus, and what does he call us to do to surrender to him? And yet, even though I can confess that, even among the Wells, uh, they would not let me pray if I was there at a teaching or a conference. They won't even let me teach, because I don't, I'm not one of the, part of fellowship like that go over the brotherhood and sisterhood of Jesus Christ. And so I challenge them on that, and uh, we have some interesting discussions. Yeah, I I think among the uh, many legacies of the Protestant Reformation, and there's many, and many of which I think were incredibly helpful and and, uh, 
participative of the kingdom life. I, I think some of the other legacies that happened were just the ongoing splits that began to take shape. It was like once you allowed one split to take shape, and and. and in defense and in fairness of Martin Luther, he had no desire to split from the church. Mm-hmm. I think he could probably sense and see that if people began to split from the church, that that might have implications for generations. He just wanted to reform what was going on in the church, which had happened for those 1,500 years. There was a pretty consistent process of reformation right. that would take shape. And now this is what we see, right? If you if, if we were to open up the Google version of the Yellow Pages that would exist today in the city of Minneapolis-St. Paul, I think at last count it's about 450 different denominations and, and I'm not sure exactly what that all bears witness to, but I, but I think it may bear witness to the human impulse to divide in the midst of disagreement instead of figure out how to walk with it. Now, clearly, there's heretical movements in the midst of it as well, but I, but I think we too quickly divide over all sorts of things that maybe a, a different form and, and a different format would have been better served for Agreed. the kingdom. So I, I know among the many reasons why young people are, are not as interested in institutional versions of Christianity anymore is what church would they even go to? It's so tricky yeah. when you have so many different nuances and all these different denominations, all of which are claiming well, to be the right denomination. I'll tell you, though, the good news is, and you're right, Peter, it's a mess, and you almost sound like a Catholic. The Catholics <laughs> would say that's why we need—no, no, seriously. The, the argument for Catholicism is what you just said. We need one pope, we need one church, we need one magisterium that's going to tell us what the truth is. Otherwise, you get 100,000 doctrines and, and denominations. Okay, uh, but uh, my but the good news in all this is, you know when Christian fellowship is going on, regardless of your denomination. Mm-hmm. I mean, Tom Parrish and I had a very liberal bishop. I had almost nothing in common with him, but I have my Baptist friends. I'd much rather take communion with them than with my liberal Lutheran bishop. And I think, you know, some of these very conservative Lutheran denominations be highly against that. You only have uh, Missouri Synod communion with Missouri Synod Lutherans. I'm just thinking, can we ease up a little bit, you know? But, you know, fellowship is, the true Christian church is invisible. It's made up of people of all denominations that truly trust in Christ. And you know it when you sense it and you feel it with your brothers and sisters. So in spite of all the mess that you just explained, which is sadly very true, there's still Christian fellowships. There's still the true church. And um, there you go. Wouldn't it be interesting, as one who grew, did grow up in the Catholic Church, and my parents started protesting when I was about 10, I didn't know for sure that they were protesting, but suddenly I couldn't take communion in my Catholic elementary school. So I was in solidarity with the other Lutheran girl in my class, and, and we would sit out the Mass every Wednesday. And it was a really interesting experience to have gone like in in the heart of that controversy at that time. And it, I am sympathetic towards the impulse of a, of a more universal kind of church, but I'm not sympathetic towards the idea that there's one pope who speaks ex cathedra or from the lips of God that then determines orthodoxy for everybody. So I'm curious, even Brock, do you see a possibility of having the priesthood of all believers that really drove the, the Protestant church in with more of a universal kind of a church as well at the same time? I don't know how you blend those two things together. Well, yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, I I kind of wish the Catholics were right. The problem is, some Catholic doctrine is so off off base of Scripture that there's no way I can be a Catholic. I just can't believe in indulgences or giving the Church money and getting people out of purgatory earlier. You know, I, I can list all this stuff, and you could too. You could, but, but I you don't, don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> we can we could just I'm, move on I, too. I don't I don't doubt there are sincere Christians in the Catholic Church, um, but there's enough there that I can't go there. But 
there there definitely is a problem with the way Christians divide. And I, I guess I think the answer is let's agree to disagree on the minor stuff and let's major in the majors. I mean, I hope I would die for the doctrine of the Trinity, for salvation by grace alone, you know, those kinds of things. I don't want to die on whether you have to be a Missouri Synod Lutheran to take communion with Missouri Synod people. And come on, you know, mm. it's too much. Yeah, I think one of the sweetest times, too, for me, going back after that experience in elementary school, was recognizing that there is there there was fifteen sixteen hundred years of beautiful wisdom being written by the church by so many of the church fathers and and mothers of those mm-hmm. first fifteen hundred years and and I felt like I'd been cut off from that long heritage when we moved mm-hmm. into the more Protestant churches and so to go back through and had just learned so much about the idea of mystery in our relationship with God and and the rich theology of a relationality with God there's so many things that I learned in those first fifteen hundred years that I'd felt cut off from and so it was a really sweet experience yep. to go back through. I have good news. And, and, go ahead, Tom. The good news is when we get to heaven, there will be no denominations. There will be one Lord and one King, and we'll all bow. And it's going to be a shocking thing for a lot of us, but that's the way it's meant to be, and yeah. that's the way it was meant to be from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, let me ask you this. Uh, this is a longer passage, and I won't read the whole thing, but it comes out of Romans chapter 14, and starts in uh, verse 23. Looking for the contextual meaning of this verse, I'll get us started. Therefore, let us not let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Mm. I am convinced, being fuller, fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. And, and the passage goes on. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. We talk about make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Well, in order to not put a stumbling block in front of somebody, you've got to figure out what the priorities are. And, and I think most Christians struggle with the priorities. What are the priorities? Well, the priorities are Jesus as one and only Savior, surrender to him, and becoming his disciple, because that's his command, go and make disciples. After that, there are things that we can adhere to or not adhere to, but they're not going to make any difference uh, with the majors. The problem is we have a tendency to major on the minors because we have more control over that than we do over anything else. And my human mm-hmm. nature is what I can control I want to go to. No, I need to give that up, and I need to go back and focus on what's important. That's what Paul was doing. It wasn't the food they were eating. It wasn't the rituals they were involved with. It was that surrender to the, the blood of Jesus and following him. And it's still a problem that, today. And I would say, too, I, I as a pastor— um, like let's say there's a banquet at your church or whatever, I think some pastors or priests will have a, a glass of wine or a bottle of beer in front of everybody. I don't think anything's wrong with having a glass of wine or a bottle of a beer, but as a pastor in front of people, I don't do it because I think it might cause some people to stumble because there might be somebody out there is fighting his life to keep away from booze, and then he sees the pastor drinking in front of everybody. So just... Again, I'm not saying it's a sin to have a glass of wine, but I think there's sometimes you just don't do it because you might cause somebody to stumble. I like that. That's why I don't eat lutefisk. <laughs> I think that's just intrinsically wrong, Paris. <laughs> no, but I, 
I, yeah, I appreciate what you guys are, are bringing up here. I, I think about uh, how many churches have gone through a lot of, of inner turmoil and strife around something as simple as the style of worship music. Now, it's not as prevalent as it was, but I remember in the 1990s, there there was so much consternation about whether you could have drums or whether you could have guitars in the service as opposed to the choral robes and, and the organ. And, and I think... It, it, can you worship in multitudes of different instrumental ways? Of course you can. But uh, on the troubling part of it, I also was sometimes in pastoral meetings where it was almost as if the pastors had become dismissive of the people who had a long history of experiencing God in these beautiful forms of worship through the choir or or through the organ. And they just thought, oh, they're not even relevant. They're not with the times. We've got to get with the next generation and, and do what the next generation is doing with that. And they were so dismissive and and I think yep. that was a stumbling yep. block that they put in. They, they used some of their pastoral authority in really yeah. inappropriate ways by dismissing the ways in which God had moved in other people's lives. And, and I think that was real problematic. The best experience I ever had in worship was in Bangladesh. I didn't know the language. I didn't know the songs. My wife and I are standing there. We're speaking English and nobody else is. And it was the best worship time I ever had mm-hmm. because the focus was on Jesus, even though I couldn't understand what they were saying. And it taught me it's not the organ, it's not the pews, it's not the building, it's the people and who they're worshiping that makes all the difference in the world. All right, let me take a little break. You're listening to Guide Talk. I still have time for a few more of your questions, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. I talk. <laughs> now I'm working your control, Tom. Okay. I apologize. <laughs> Turn my right. volume up, my earpiece, Rosie. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. All right, let me know. I got great questions coming in, so I don't. I'm going to just get to this next one here. Let's talk about uh, Jesus's promise of rest in Matthew 11:28 to 30. How do we come to Jesus? What ways do we come to Jesus to find the rest He promises? Biggest thing is is pure out honesty. And pure, you know, an honesty about yourself and an honesty who Jesus is. And my experience has been if I can get people through counseling, prayer, whatever, to take that step and just say, yeah, I am a wreck. Yeah, I've, I've done things I'm not proud of. Yes, I need Jesus desperately. Then we can begin to enter that rest. Now, here's the problem. Once we know Jesus, we still are carrying a lot of stuff around that we have to keep on loading. And so every day we have to keep on loading that and giving that back and letting Jesus take the burden. And I'm not much into visualizing things, you know, with with people in prayer or whatever. But there have been times I've actually asked people when they told me, I can't forgive this person. I can't forgive them. I can't forgive them. I'll say, okay, then let you and I pray. And I want you to see Jesus standing between you and that person with his outstretched hands. And now your, your hatred and anger has to go through Jesus to get there. And the guy broke down in tears, literally, and said, I never thought of it that way. I will forgive for Jesus' sake. There's the power. It's in Jesus. Mm -hmm. I think the way we come to Jesus, of course, is through prayer, but another really big way is by going forward and taking Holy Communion in church with other believers. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, you have the one-on-one when you're praying to Him, but when you're with other Christians, worshiping Him, Going forward, taking, you know, the the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Christ, that's a big way of going forward to Jesus, which is why I don't like it when 
people, you know, watch TV and, and take out their own bread and wine and do it in front of the TV set. Eh, I don't think so. <laughs> We're supposed you know, communion was done as part of the body of believers in the early church. And, and we miss uh, a, a huge way of coming to Jesus is when's the last time you had communion? When's the last time you worshiped? When we study uh, Acts and we, we learn that the Bereans would take what was said and, and study it against what the scriptures taught. You know, ever since I heard that, I, I always assumed that the Bereans ran home to their, their little hut and pulled out their Bible. They didn't have Bibles. Mm-hmm. Right. So they would have to assemble amongst each other and talk it over, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. is kind of, to your point, Tom Brock, it's the, the significance mm-hmm. of gathering and the importance of getting together. Yes. Yes. Kind of what we're doing and I'll say, and, right now. And I'll say it again. Yep, exactly. And I'll say it again. I get emails from people that, you know, Pastor Brock, I don't go to church anymore because the church is in darkness. And I understand the Bible properly. And so it's just me and the Bible and God. And then you hear what they tell you. They end up with very weird beliefs when you do that. We need our brothers and sisters to talk about these things so we don't become strange in our beliefs. Yeah, I yeah, agreed. I know for me, too, when I go into hermit mode for too long and, and I just sort of get in a rhythm of just being on my own or just being with, with my family, sometimes we might get invited out to eat and I just think, oh, gosh, I don't want to go out to eat and can't be bothered and all of that. And there's there's so many times I've come back from those two hours thinking, what was my problem? Why was I the idiot about not wanting to go out to eat? Because my yeah. soul is so refreshed and at rest in the presence of other believers like that. Yeah. Yeah. Here's That's a question. Right. Here's a question out of Psalm 139. that talks about... Uh, do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And I am not, I am grieved with those that rise up against thee. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. So here's this psalm, in this psalm, talking about perfect hatred. What do you make of this passage? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, well, Jesus, says, love your, Jesus, yeah, Jesus says, love your enemies, and then you have that in the Old Testament. So he, there's a way to put it together, but maybe one of these guys want to try. Well, it's not as difficult as I think, as we imagine. If you remember, the scriptures are an unfolding revelation from Genesis to the book of Revelation. In other words, Genesis didn't have all the information about Jesus as it's laid out in the Gospels. You know, Deuteronomy didn't have all the information laid out as to, you know, what the kingdom of God was going to be like and that type of thing. We need the whole of scriptures to look at it. And that's why I always tell people, look, you run into an individual passage like this, and it really is harsh. Look at what Jesus did with it. Look how he talked about hate. And when you balance that out with the bigger picture of what Jesus said and then go back on that, then you understand David was being as sincere as he could be with what he knew and understood in his relationship with the Lord and his enemies. But Jesus now says, hey, you've heard it said, hate your enemies. I say to you, and that's where we've got to take that. So never isolate any passage by itself. Always look at what the other passages say around it. Yeah, I, when I think about the word hate, I was just thinking about um, leprosy in the New Testament that as this as this physical picture of a disease that is disfiguring a beautiful image bearer in a physical kind of way. And and so when you when your breath is taken away by an image bearing person and they're in the possibility and the potential and now they have a disease that is foreign to them, but has has rooted itself in them and it's going to kill them at the end of the day. I mean, I, I think if, if I went home this afternoon and my wife told me that our 14-year-old had some sort of cancer diagnosis. I would hate that cancer diagnosis. I would hate it with every bit in my... I would not tolerate it. I would want to come against it. I would want to remove it for what it's going to do to her. And now 
Leprosy is so often a picture of sin in the physical space of what's going on in the realm of the spirit, about how it's disfiguring the beautiful image bearers as well. So I think it's perfectly appropriate to hate the the leprous reality of sin that yes. is destroying the image bearers and wanting to then come up against it on every level. So you can use words like detest would be a word that uh, would be from the Hebrew or the Greek related to hatred. I just, I detest that it's destroying the image bearers. I think once we start taking that view uh, of all of creation, of how it is enslaved to sin, you begin to detest and you begin to almost want to be even more so an evangelist of the good news. There is good news. There is, we can see the power of sin and death broken in people's lives. I have good news for you in the midst of this leprosy as you hate the leprosy. See, my problem is, and, and I agree with you. Go ahead, Tom. I'm sorry. You haven't spoken. Well, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, I, I know and I agree that the Bible, uh, the New Testament, you get a lot more revelation than the Old Testament, but we, and I think you'd agree, Tom, everything in the Old Testament is true. Of and course. when David says in the Psalms, I hate them that hate thee with a perfect hatred, there's got to be something true in that. And, and so there's a sense in which I am to love my enemies, and I think there's a sense in which I'm to hate. I am to hate my enemies, and I, I, that's what I think needs to be talked through because both are true. I mean, I, I, just off the top of my head, you know, the Bible says, "Hate evil, you who love the Lord." And so we are to hate evil, and that includes humans, but we hate them in a way that maybe hates their disease, hates their their you know, adultery or violence or, or whatever, uh, but still in the sense love the person because Jesus said love your enemies. Somehow we got to put it all together. Well, Parrish, you said something earlier in this program that there is not a one-size-fits-all approach, and Jesus does not have a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to sin. The people that he reserves, this the intensity of the anger, had we been standing in the scene when he starts addressing the Pharisees, and it's calling him a brood of vipers, and you might as well just tie a millstone around your neck and chuck yourself into the ocean. Like This kind of language, Jesus did not have any patience because he knew uh, how these people were perpetrating the disfiguration of sin and keeping people out of the kingdom. He had no patience for that deal Agreed. at all. Well, I, I hate and, child people that traffic children all around the world. Yeah. And the people who do it are horrible people. Here's my problem. If I operate on the hate level toward the people that are doing it, right. I'll be James and John and call down fire from heaven and destroy them. I'm not commanded by the Lord to go destroy those people. What I'm called to do is to speak the truth to them and call them to repentance and stop what they're doing, if at all possible. And I think that's the problem is when I hear these words hate and things like that, that is my nature. I don't have a problem with those words. I have a problem loving people and caring about people, even those that are sinful and have hurt me. And so, yeah, and you got to have that balance. And I don't like it when some people, oh, I just hate that person, or I just, you know, ee, don't do that. Mm -hmm. But um, Paul, the apostle, who is really upset with the Galatian heretics who are insisting on circumcision, mm -hmm. says, I wish those who are troubling you would cut themselves off, <laughs> which is castrate themselves. I mean, and I think... Well, can't can't you still love and them he, and do that, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> no. But, and Jesus said, you know, you whitewash walls to the Pharisees, and you brood of vipers. There is a time when you have to say a hard word when people are being so evil that they're just destroying human lives. And, I mean, I... Boy, this whole thing about Texas and abortion, it's just so sad to see everybody up in arms. I saw a beautiful cartoon of a little baby in its mother's womb with its thumb up holding a sign saying, I love Texas. And, you know, you never hear about the unborn child when uh, the CBS Evening News is ranting about 
you know, the, the politics of Texas. And it's and sometimes there comes time for a hard word. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. A uh, couple of comments as we uh, wrap up our time here. Um, maybe uh, we needed the the Holy Spirit to enable us to love our enemies because the Holy Spirit didn't come until after Jesus, maybe because of the hatred in the Old Testament. And then isn't uh, hating the sin but loving the person what we should be doing? A couple of great sure. comments coming in. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think that's fair. Just quickly on that piece of it, uh, if, if to love someone is desire that they could be whole as well, you can you can hold the tension of both at the same time. You you can mm-hmm. hate what's going on and the disfiguration and what they're bringing to the table and still hold the balance. To say, but if there could be any way that you that would be saved from this, that you you would desire their wholeness even in the midst of that energy. Yeah, right. I want to apologize for those who sent in great questions that I didn't get to today. I will save them for next Thursday when we uh, gather again. So thank you so much, gentlemen. And Tom, you are in Italy, and I just want everyone to know that you're taking time out of your three-week vacation to call in to Guide Talk, and it's six hours ahead. I'm going to sleep. Six hours ahead, (laughs) so you are now free. I'm laid down asleep. So you go to sleep. All right. Good night. Thanks. Thank you. And Peter Peter and Tom, thank you so much for being here for Guide Talk. and. That wraps up this hour. We're going to take a little break, but we come back. Dr. Ann Rathbone Bradley is going to be joining me. She's an economist. And then Dr. Rebecca Rhee is going to be joining me as well. That's all ahead in hour two. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.